Oh there, welcome to Terror Talk. This is Shannon and Kathy. I always uh, like to I like to thank Shannon because she asks me to bring the light topics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I set a mood for today. You I, certainly did. I put a I put a woodsy candle on for the fall vibes because it's now November, so we got fall vibes going. The lights are dim, and we're gonna try to tackle a fairly light topic <laughs> fairly light as as proposed in the title the sex offender next door yeah one of kathy's expertise in the psychological realm so i asked her to uh share with us all many things we will learn many things well and we watch a lot of horror films i know we have a, a you know yeah. our audience some of it split some of it is mm -hmm. both you know some of y'all like both the horror and the true crime because they do overlap and we do watch a lot of horror films where there are quote-unquote sexual predators you bet and not to blame society because we don't unless you work among this population you don't really know how to differentiate a sex offender from a predator and xyz that really this episode is about having a conversation around whether like do these folks get better that's what i'm curious about it's literally literally it came from me wanting to know the answer to that question in a more comprehensive way i think it's something none of us really want to talk about. I don't think it's a topic that a lot of people want to address unless you have someone in your family or you've been a victim of, or it has somehow touched your personal life. And so I don't want to leave those people out of the conversation. So no. it just really feels like maybe this episode isn't going to be the most popular <laughs> downloaded episode because they'll see the title and be like, whoa, no, thank you. But Or, or out of curiosity, people will be like, ooh, Okay, I kind of want to listen to this. Yeah, I need to be in a mood, though. You know, it'll be one of those where it's oh, like... I need to be in that sex offender mood. Yeah, I need to be in a mood to be able to have hard thoughts. Let's put it that I, way. I do, and I have... And, and let me let me be clear. I don't work as much with the perpetrator. I don't really work with the perpetrators anymore, but for a long time, I was certified through the California Sex, Offen sex Offender Management Board, which is where, you know, in order to work with these folks and continue treatment with them or evaluations, um, you have to be KSOM certified in the state of California. I did not renew my KSOM certification because that's not the general population I work with anymore. I get a lot of questions from students, from just people in society who know that I've worked with this population. Like, how the fuck, why would you, you know, yeah, it's that. Yeah, exactly. And my answer is this, listen, when you're working with these folks, depending on their level of, functioning and I'll talk about that in a moment the client is really the community mm -hmm. that's who we're protecting yeah because regardless of whether this ends up being a, a person who has the capacity for rehabilitation or someone who may not the reason why we need to study these folks the reason why there's this deep-seated interest is because one it's something that most people will will never offend someone to this degree. They don't understand it. It is something that angers people. So they're like, why would you work? Well, we have to understand it to protect society. It's a public service. It's a public service. 
So someone needs to work with them. Yeah, it's part of our social service kind of, in my mind, our mandate. I yeah. realize that mo I realize that most licensed people don't see it as their personal mandate to, to work in social services, quote unquote, meaning not just the worried well and not just people that can afford large fees. It, I do believe it's so... I believe it's critical to, at least when you're training, like if not the whole time, but at least when you're spending five, six, seven years training and doing practicum and internship and all that to become a psychologist, I feel like it's critical to spend time in social services with underserved communities and misunderstood communities, which this would be one. Absolutely. And, and I've said this before on other episodes, and Shannon has said this before on other episodes, we are uh, merely giving an explanation. We're not ever excusing behavior. We're just helping people understand how this happens, legally what this looks like, and then looking into with someone who the community might label as very sick or twisted or evil, can they actually get better? Can they actually be rehabilitated? There's a huge misnomer or assumption about sex offenders that they have also been sexually abused or that they've all had a horrible upbringing. Well, there are different categories of sex offenders, which is not really what this episode is about, so I'm not going to go too far down the rabbit hole, but that's actually not true because not all of them are mentally ill due to their own abuse. Some of them are mentally disordered. And the distinction there would be there's a difference between someone who might have a personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder with, you know, traits of psychopathy. They don't have any remorse. And that is very different from someone who might be developmentally delayed, who was abused as a child and now is reliving that experience and perpetrating, but may not even fully understand what they're doing. And then everything in between. So I just want to be clear that not all sex offenders, just like when we're talking about mental health in general in any diagnostic category, they're not all the same. Okay. So what you're saying is that when we label somebody a sexual predator, which I know you're going to get into yeah. later, be just because the word sexual is in it doesn't mean that there's the a long history and that's, that's right. the origin of all of the behavior, which, as you can imagine, for regular people who haven't worked with a ton of sex offenders or don't know a lot about this, that doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't. It, it doesn't make sense. But, uh, you know, that's okay. It doesn't make sense. Right. <laughs> and I'll give you a quick example of that. I used to run groups for folks that had offenses due to obsessive child pornography addictions and that they were, you know, FBI found them and everything was collected and they had thousands of images and videos on their cache. And that, so when I'd run these groups, I'd ask them, how the fuck did you get here? Mm -hmm. Did you start with child pornography? And they're like, no, honestly, I started with, you know, whatever you would consider regular and legal appropriate adult pornography. Mm -hmm. And then that led to need just like a drug. This isn't effective anymore. I need something more and more and more and more and more. But the etiology of a lot of the addiction most of the time was that they were raised without anyone talking to them about sex. Right. So where did they go? They went to porn because mm -hmm. porn taught them 
yeah. what a healthy sexual lifestyle was. Oh, I just have to beat a woman into submission. I can rape her. I can do all these things. And many of these guys, when I had them in these uh, groups, they'd be like, if I could go back, I realize how badly I have fucked up and victimized. Not all of them. Some of them had no remorse and they were goddamn psychopaths. Right. But there were many of them that said, my family refused to talk to me about sex. And I had no one teaching me and I found pornography. And that doesn't mean that everyone who finds pornography and that's how they find their sexual life, that's how it develops, becomes a child sexual predator. But that was a big trajectory. I saw that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to hear because there is a big part of me that's like... lacks empathy oh (laughs) there's a part of me that's like okay so that's your reasoning and having facilitated lots of groups i get it that's those are the things that you want your clients to learn and know about themselves and have and you're assessing for level of guilt and Mm -hmm. and ability to rehabilitate which is really what we're talking about today so you're really bringing up the first point of like can they discuss the origin Can they look at it clearly now? Do they feel remorse? Do they feel guilty? All of that. And that's kind of one of those things you're kind of assessing for all the Mm -hmm. time about rehabilitation, right? Yeah. And one of the things that we look for when we're doing that is whether, especially with child pornography, is whether they can admit that their victims are truly victims because most child pornography offenders are what we call non-contact offenders. They've never touched a child, Mm -hmm. but they've exploited thousands of them through either passing along images or, you know, and then you have the offenders who just literally buy and sell for money that Mm -hmm. really aren't turned on. Mm -hmm. And then the ones that just harbor it for their own pleasure. So there's so many categories I'm not going to go into. Yeah, I was going to say, did you specifically only work with people who offended against children? No, I I worked across the spectrum. Okay. But these these are the ones that trigger most people. And with the sex offenders, I mean, the child pornography offenders, that's a very different type of therapy and evaluation than, you know, some of these other folks over here that we'll talk about. But the reason I brought that up as an example is many of these folks were not sexually abused. They just found pornography and then it became an addiction, but they were not sexually abused. Yeah. And then your tolerance builds like any addiction and like a drug gets way out of fucking control. Yeah. And there were many of them that had a lot of, and you bring up something important. A lot of them would try to feign this, you know, oh, I feel so bad. Yeah. And I uh, didn't have empathy for most of them. Yeah, it's tough. But I had empathy for some. It would be tough to sit in empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them were so violently abused themselves. Those are the ones that I had a little bit more uh, empathy for. Can they be rehabilitated? Well, let's talk about, first of all, how do we define this? So a sexually violent predator is not necessarily the same thing as a sex offender. All violent predators are offenders. Not all offenders are violent predators. A sexually violent predator, and I'm going based mostly on California law. A lot of this does translate into other states, but I'm going mostly based on the state that I'm licensed in. So a sexually violent predator is a person who has been convicted 
of a sexually violent offense against one or more victims and who has a diagnosed mental disorder that makes the person a danger to the health and safety of others and that it is likely that he, she, or they will engage in sexually violent criminal behavior. So in the state of California, it's two-pronged. Um, that there, it's not just the offense, but it's also the mental disorder that's assigned to that offense. A lot of these folks will end up in forensic hospitals and not in prison. The, and people go, well, how is that fair? Well, going to a forensic hospital is actually not all that it's chalked up to be because you could be civilly committed for the rest of your life versus going to prison where you might get a 10-year sentence and then you're released on probation. Yeah, and I don't think, and I know you're going to talk about this, but I don't think a lot of people understand what civilly committed is oh and, my gosh. and all of that. Yeah, you're basically under the control of the state for the rest of your life, depending on how your treatment goes. So although the phrase sexually violent offense includes a variety of sex crimes, its core definition applies to acts of force, violence, duress, menace or threats of immediate bodily injury or future retaliation against a person when you engage in these acts it, it does have to fall under a certain category and there there's multiple prongs that need to be met in order for someone to be deemed a sexually violent predator so depending on the state the sexual predator or what the state of california calls uh we call them svps that's just a short you know sexually violent predator sort way of talking about them, is someone guilty of more than one sexual offense? Most of these folks have multiple or two or more. If an inmate is suspected of being an SVP, then they have to undergo a special parole proceeding to determine if they are ready to reenter society. This is a really triggering conversation for people who do not work in this field mm -hmm. because they're like, I don't want a fucking sex offender living next door. I have three kids. Yeah. Or, you know, I don't feel safe for my wife or my animals or whatever. And I can't blame any, I would feel the same way probably. Uh, yeah. Because how do we know these folks can control their impulses? And I'm going to answer some of this in a bit. Okay. But a sex offender is typically given um, a specific sentence and then reenter society under probation when they're released from prison versus a violent predator might need to go through more. They have more than one victim. Okay. They go to a hospital instead of prison. But it's important to understand that not all sex offenders and not even all of those who have a requirement to register as a sex offender are sexually violent predators. They are distinct categories. Okay. And so... And yeah, what, are, and what, are the, what, so if you're not a sexually violent predator, you might be a person that is the no contact situation. No, you just might have, you might one, have offense. one offense. You might not be found to have any, um, you know, profound mental disorder mm -hmm. or mental health diagnosis. It's okay. like, and I'm, I'm not minimizing this, but it could be no. something like, you know, you work, you date raped somebody. Yes. Right. And I had a client. And there's only one person accusing you of that. Yes. I had a client who um, he was accused of raping this girl that he went on a date with. And that's how he ended up in the program. Mm -hmm. That's very different from yes. 
the guy that has grooming 10 children under his violently, belt. Yeah, exactly. Violently raping multiple people. Right. Yeah. So when gotcha. people say, oh, sex offenders don't get any sentencing, that you, you have to realize there's a, there's a huge spectrum gotcha. of that. And we don't, th- I don't, I never did yeah. before I entered this industry ever thought. And I imagine even a lot of therapists don't even think about this because it's not the population they work with. And I can guarantee you most of our listeners probably don't think about it because it's just not part of the the everyday thought process. Yeah. I hope, I hope it really yeah, isn't I know. part of your everyday thought process, but yeah, I, you wouldn't make a lot of distinction. No. It would just be like, that's a sexual predator. And regardless of whether or not they, you know, it was child porn on their computer and they got this distinction or all the way to violently raping multiple people, you know, the worst of the worst. It, it, I want to add this too. I'm going to throw this out there because there are a lot of folks who work in the, and, and I don't care. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care if I'm offending anybody who works in what I'm about to discuss, because I think this is really important for people to understand. I had a student once challenge me. She, she was in a, she was certified in working with people who had sexual compulsivities and when I was talking about sex addiction and using certain language in, in my law and ethics class, sure. she was like, excuse me, Dr. Barrett, but we don't use the word addiction. We use the word compulsion because that's pathologizing someone. I said, well, you know what? Sometimes people need to be fucking pathologized. <laughs> and she and I had, a le- I said, what scares me is that you are not qualified to understand that someone may come in there with that train of thought, they are pulling the fucking wool over your eyes and acting like they have some sexual compulsive disorder. I said, until you have worked with someone who has raped 12 children, yeah. don't tell me there isn't something like a fucking addiction. Yeah. I, well, and luckily that person's in school. <laughs> uh, not anymore. <laughs> to learn. But, the, and, and she, she fought it. I mean, we had yeah. various concerns about this student because, and, and I would share with her, I said, it scares me that this is your, your thought process because you are assuming yeah. that everyone coming to you is really remorseful and that we aren't looking, there is a pathology behind some, and sometimes right situations need to be pathologized. Absolutely. So I was very concerned for the student and, and I understood the school that she went to and the certifications that right. she got. But I said, until you have worked with violent offenders who have done some of the worst things that I will not even repeat on the show. Right. Do not tell me that addiction is not a thing. Yeah, I do. Uh, it's like that little knowledge goes goes awry kind of a situation and I understand it's like maybe somebody that she really respected taught her that you know what I mean and it's just like oh yeah but you can't sit in experience and and it's not as we always say it's just really it's not black and white all the time and it's also not always our opinions you know we say things very strongly on the show but we also say there are opinions so our opinions aren't always the be all end all of everything and neither were hers. And it's like, this is not, it's not okay to be sort of controlling the language of the industry sometimes. Right. I think we get pretty out of control with that. I think what, 
scared me the most is that, and sure. some people might be saying like, well, what's the difference between a compulsion and addiction? Well, the yeah. compulsion implies that really there's no harm being done to anyone else or that it's more of like something that they just need to learn how to, you know, either manifest in different ways or well, it, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but like uh, compulsion to me is part of OCD. And so yeah. compulsion means you have to do these things to feel better about yourself. Yes. And as if there's some sort of empathy in, that we would have for that. And it's an anxious, it's in our anxious mental illness yeah. pile. Uh -huh. And I, and I don't see this as an anxious no. situation. This is a predatory thing. Yeah. That's the way I would look at it. Like compulsion is anxiety in many, yeah. in many ways. No, that's Obviously, absolutely right. Not black and white, but like uh, most of the time. Where addiction has everything to do with either causing harm or distress to the person that's doing it or to the, who it's being done to. Right. Um, it's a very different thing. So predatory, what, what does that even mean? A predatory act is, a, is an act directed towards a stranger a person of casual acquaintance with whom no substantial relationship exists or an individual with whom a relationship has been established or promoted for the primary purpose of victimization. The individual does not need prior offenses to be placed in this category. So going back to this previous conversation around uh, the word love addiction or love addicts is, is a bad thing. Sorry guys, but there are predators out there that to Shannon's point they're not doing this out of anxiety. They're doing it out of having a victim pool and being predators. Yeah. So here's something from the California's high-risk sex offender and sexually violent predator task force. They say, although major mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or organic brain syndrome qualifies mental disorders, most SVPs, sexually violent predators, primarily suffer from some type of paraphilia. Before I move on, I'm going to end that quote for a second. We've talked about on other shows how people will say, well, schizophrenia is what makes you dangerous or bipolar disorder makes someone dangerous. That is false. Mm. That is false. What they're saying here is, although, they, although these might be present, they also have a co-occurring paraphilic disorder. These are diagnosable conditions characterized by deviant sexual urges. Again, this is where the love compulsive people will be like, you're pathologizing, okay? You have fantasies or behaviors that are involving humiliation. That's a problem unless it's a, sh a shared, safe BDSM space. That's not what we're talking about here, right? Sexual activity with children, that's a problem, and or sexual activity with other non-consenting persons. That's a fucking problem. Mm. And they occur over a period of at least six months. So these are deviant. And we can use that fucking word because they're deviant. <laughs> oh, she's so mad. Oh, my God. Everything <laughs> is like uh, there's a protest against calling it out sometimes. These are <laughs> deviant urges, fantasies, behaviors that are sufficiently intense and causing significant distress or impairment, not only to the person with the paraphilia, but to their victims or potential victims. Okay. Okay. So having a co-occurring mental illness does not equate with someone being insane. It has everything. That's a completely different topic. That just means that you can have these other mental health 
disorders, that is not what's making the person violent. It's in conjunction with these other things. Okay. Okay. If the board of parole hearings believes that an inmate is potentially an SVP, then this person is going to be referred to the California Sex Offender Management Board, which I used to be a part of, for further screening. So they'll come in, they'll talk to them a little bit. Mm -hmm. Okay, they'll do some testing on them. These tests are invasive as hell. I don't think anybody wants a little thing around their penis measuring blood flow. No. Very invasive. These people do go through, I mean, they don't just get arrested a slap on the wrist and I know that's what media shows but it's very invasive so if the and then if the inmate is scheduled to be released from these sentences the board may require them to remain incarcerated for a maximum of 45 additional days for the department of mental health to examine the case so there are steps in Mm -hmm. they don't just go back into society right no Okay. I mean, you worked in a program that they had to attend. Yeah, and they, had, and they had to be on probation for a long time, and they had to take polygraphs every six months. And I remember that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember, I mean, you and I were friends during that time, so I remember you talking about having to write up big reports and yeah. sort of go and, I don't want to use the word testify, but talk to their people to try to determine and assess. And like, there was a lot of conversation and a lot of denials, a lot of no. (laughs) There are a lot of no's. And I would have to talk to judges. I would have to talk to probation department, probation and parole. All of these things were part of the job because it took a, a big team and it was hard. Sometimes it was difficult. Well, it's always difficult if you're a forensic psychologist because the law doesn't understand psychology and psychology doesn't understand the law. So you become this, mediator yes to help both pieces come together because they don't work together well new okay now we got i'm just going to name him joe smith joe smith if there's a joe smith listening i'm sorry it's not you (laughs) or maybe it is we determine that joe smith meets the criteria so the department assigns two clinicians okay right so two practicing psychologists two psychiatrists or one of each to perform independent evaluations so they do very in-depth psychological evaluations to see, is this person ready? Okay. okay so the, the clinicians must decide. I'm sorry, this is to decide whether they fall into the category of SVP. So they have to decide whether this person has a diagnosable mental disorder, number one. And if so, whether that disorder makes it likely that they will commit a new sexually violent predatory act once released from prison Mm, there's the rub so i'll tell you what it is really hard once you get into a program like this to get out yeah because what you need to get in the bar to get in is low the bar to get out is high okay and i would imagine yeah most people want it that way now, the other option is that the person is released into the community on what we call a conditional release program. So in addition or alternatively, the, the SVP may petition the court for, you know, I want to go into a conditional release program. I'm ready X, Y, Z. Okay. If the court agrees to this and the, the patient no longer meets that criteria, it will not pose a public safety threat if the conditional release program supervise them supervises them and keeps them in that program so they don't again they don't just get to walk right back out 
into the community. Sometimes no, the yeah. news makes it look like that. Yeah, the fear installation that we have in our media, they want to make us afraid. Yeah. And they also want to make these people a target and also keep them out of their communities, keep them away from uh, themselves, you know, our media, our people too, <laughs> keep them away from their, they're horrified by the crimes. Yeah. They don't know them as people, of course. They don't have any mitigating circumstances or assessment or training or any of that. And also, us as consumers look and read the sensationalism. Oh, yeah. And so the media continues to talk, uh, give us what we want as yeah. people. We, That's right. Sensational stuff yeah. i mean right here on this show we talk about all of this true crime we talk about big horror movies we talk about really difficult things some of the things are very much in the sensationalist categories i think personally the way we talk about them does not necessarily always sensationalize things we try to, we try to talk about it from a psychological perspective but yeah you know it's better reading or whatever for the average person and also just our fear everything we talk about right is mm -hmm. it, we want to be safe we do want to be safe and we don't have any way of determining w whether someone is safe or not mm -hmm. and we don't know you so we don't mm -hmm. have any way of trusting you mm -hmm. personally yep so uh, it's, it's hard it's really tough these are these offenses are I think even more so than homicides and things like that. Yeah. These really trigger folks and I get it. I mean, I I'll say I have read police reports and charts that I wish no person ever needs to read. Yeah. These are things that the news won't even talk about. No. Um, because it's just, it isn't necessary. Well, people don't want to know that that exists and it's traumatizing to even hear about. There's no, and I've had people ask me, what's the worst case? And I'll say, I, I'm not even going to tell you. There's <laughs> no, just absolutely You don't no need reason. to hear it. You don't need to hear it. Just no. know that it, it gets bad. Yeah. So I'll, I'll finish this and then we'll talk, have a short conversation on the rehabilitation piece. So okay. folks that are put on this, some folks will be put on what's called unconditional release where um, somebody from the Department of Corrections, a parole agent, will see them for a period of years, typically between 10 and 15 years. So they either go to conditional release. If it's unconditional release, then that means that they, they are out in the community, but they're under a Department of Probation. So when I was working in San Francisco, that was very different from when I was working in L.A. In L.A., it was conditional. In San Francisco, it was unconditional. In San Francisco, there are way more unconditional release programs where they do go into the community. But San Francisco actually has, I think, way more sophisticated programs. Mm. And in some ways, people think, oh, unconditional release. My God, they're not being monitored 24-7. I'll tell you what. I saw, saw more of a success rate with those folks underneath probation and therapy than folks that were warehoused in conditional release programs. That makes so, sense. But that's a whole other story. So there's there's different ways this can be done. So the question then, what you know, why are we here? Why are we having this conversation? To torture us, to, to torture me. To torture you. To all. make it make it awful, make the day more awful. Okay, go ahead. So the question comes down to can can these folks be rehabilitated? So we want to and let me be clear much of the research has been made, has been done on cis male offenders because the majority of offenders are cis male. Okay. And to be honest with you, 
heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Despite belief out there that all queer men are pedophiles. Okay? They do exist, but they're actually not the majority. They're a smaller percentage. Many of them are married with children and live what appears to be a very, quote-unquote, normal life. Mm-hmm. So a lot of uh, the work we would we would do would be in these groups. So the way that it works, I'm going to talk about the unconditional program that I worked up okay. in San Francisco, is we would do a lot of group work and individual work, but with the men, we would have them discuss core beliefs around masculinity and femininity. There's so much misogyny in many of these cases around what it and not all their victims are are female but if we're working with sex offenders who have had adult female victims Mm -hmm. we're going to have conversations about core beliefs how they were raised to believe that you know masculinity was more powerful xyz um so this was especially if their victims were were female cis or trans doesn't matter Exploring beliefs about women while using cognitive restructuring would open up a lot of distortions around misogyny. And cognitive restructuring is really just a fancy way of saying we're helping them reframe how they think about things. Yeah. And in addition, we would help them find, here's a big one, and this is something that we do a lot in all therapy. We have to help people find a meaning and a purpose in their life Mm -hmm. and find protective factors in their life, other relationships that hold them accountable. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why this is important is because if you're working with someone who has an urge to continue to offend and they don't really have a lot of empathy around their victims, we need to give them something, their own reason to not reoffend. Yeah. So makes perfect sense. It lowers their risk of wanting to reoffend because they have something to live for and doing what they've done will create a much more difficult life for them. So the and work- people they respect and care about That's right. and trust yeah. That can set can that can hold up the mirror that they never got, the healthy mirror they never got that can say, uh, no, no. Yeah, this is not <laughs> don't, happening. Don't, no. <laughs> That's or or just give them the face of like, what are you talking? You know, yeah. Just that reflection of and then that's how children learn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. That, that I'm not supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. We get those signals from our parents, our caregivers, whoever's around us as children. We get those signals of like, oh, you know, dad's making a face at that, that I shouldn't do that. Right. And so then you learn that that's not now we could argue that that could for some folks that could repress urges and have them act out in more aggressive and violent ways. There's all kinds of theories to go around with this, but if it's early enough and you're getting those early mirroring healthy things and adaptive ways of going and thinking and behaving and not, and giving correct feedback for maladaptive behaviors and expressions early enough, that's how we all grow up. That's right. That's how we get to be healthy people. Hopefully. Yeah, so a lot of those groups are reparenting, basically, yeah. right? We're doing that makes that. sense to me. I mean, even social skills trainings will do, you know, working. Absolutely. They've been isolated for a ton of time, I imagine, too. Yeah, and, and the work that we do with these folks, the reality is we're looking to diminish risk. We cannot remove the urge. That would be an impossible, I mean, an impossible feat would really be to remove the urge. So when people say, you know, can someone go from being a high risk offender to going into the community and no longer having urges? Well, let's look at addiction. 
you know, it's, it's day to day. People have to work on their sobriety. Mm-hmm. And this is another form of that. It's never going to be easy for them, which is why we have to help build protective factors to lower the risk in their lives. My, my students hate when I use this terminology, but I'll say when they ask me something and I say, well, it depends. <laughs> and it depends on a lot. Everybody hates the it depends answer, even though that's life, man. Yeah. So, so <laughs> what I, I mean, what I've found is there are many folks who actually want help. They yeah. want to stop. Sure. But there, there are these narcissists and psychopaths that are embedded in this mix who have zero remorse. Yeah. They feign empathy. Treatment actually can be fun for them because it's another way to victimize by manipulating the system um, into releasing them back into the community. And oh my God, in group. Oh God. Because a lot of guys, you know, or maybe you don't know, but a lot of treatment is group therapy, right? You know, a lot of treatment in agencies and government and the and the kind of program that Kathy worked in is group therapy like it's the yeah. bulk of what you're going to get in addiction treatment in this treatment and all the treatments and oh god the folks that are the rehearsing f- full of shit oh god in group is so rough but you can generally rely on the folks that aren't full of shit calling them on being full of shit which oh, is yeah, you'll see that. incredibly helpful, yeah. honestly, because yeah. if they're if everyone in the room is buying it, it's like, oh, God, I can't. What am I going to do? <laughs> and there's a there's a big difference between someone who's having uh, like a breakthrough and they're getting defended and they're really feeling something versus watching someone's mask drop. Oh, yeah. And you'll see people's masks drop in there where you're like, oh, there's that little psychopath. Yeah, there's that little fucker. Someone will poke them. Yeah, there's that little fucker. Someone will poke yeah. that shame and mm-hmm. there, there they are. And you're yep. like, oh, crap, I knew it. Like removing a tick. It's yeah. like, oh, there's that little fucker. Okay, it's like let's, you knew yeah. it's coming, but it's mm-hmm. always a little disappointing, honestly. Because you know it's coming and yeah, our ego can get involved where we're like, oh, I knew it. But also, ugh, it's a little disappointing because <laughs> it's like, oh, shit, I was, you know, I think to work in this industry, you have to have hope. <laughs> and so yeah. there's always a little bit of hope. You're like, eh, maybe there's something. No, never mind. The hope for me when I was working with this population was, am I doing what I can do to keep the community safer? Right. It was always, most of the time, it was more about if this person goes out into the community what is the likelihood that the, the people, the children, the animals around them will be at least somewhat safe? Yeah, that's what you were trying to determine all the time. Yeah. Which is hard. It is hard. You know, it's just like doing 5150 evaluations or our kids ready to go home to their families are, you know, all of the things. It's really hard. Any kind of system that you work in and we're not perfect and as Kathy has mentioned a multitude of times you know our gut is only you know is is neither here nor there sometimes so yeah making these assessments is of course based on data and a long history of developing tools to assess and yes our assessment or our thought process not our gut necessarily but our educated opinion based on experience is is what we're going on as well, not just the data. So I don't know. It's incredibly difficult. So 
Let's I'm, just say we used a lot of gallows humor. Yeah. And I watched uh, a lot of reality TV at that time and Scooby-Doo and thing. I would come home yeah. and literally have to dumb myself down. Yeah, of course. Just make life simple and find the joy and the meaning in your own life in yep. order to, to, you know, practice taking care of yourself. But yeah. I think you and I used to joke like, oh, I got to go home and pop in a Disney. Yeah. We used to say that oh, all the God. time. Oh, God. I mean, the shit. <laughs> but listen, really what it comes down to is there's a huge continuum. Yeah, okay. The work is really in keeping the community safe and doing our best to make sure that, one, we're not warehousing people that don't need to be there anymore. And two that we are keeping people in programs who do need to be there and finding like assessing appropriately. And that takes multiple people and teams, not just one person having a voice in that. So if you've made it all the way to the end of this episode, we very much appreciate you. (laughs) (laughs) And we recommend you go home and pop in a Disney or if you're on your way to work. Oh boy. So sorry. Yeah. Uh, but maybe, maybe pop into Disney when you get to work. Yeah. I mean, for educational purposes, you know, this might not be the conversation you have over the water cooler with your friends at work, but you know, we hope we've, I don't know. What did we hope we did? <laughs> uh, Shared some of our professional acumen. We hope we made your day. All right. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of terror talk. My name is Shannon and I'm Kathy sleep safe. Everyone.